Hello and welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. Thank you for listening. Today is February 17th, which happens to be my brother's birthday. So happy birthday to E. Fink. I'll dedicate this episode to his friendship and support. This year is flying. We have fully transitioned to 2019. And hopefully you are still trucking along with your New Year's resolutions. But if you're struggling, there may be something that can help. The Kind Mind Studio is now here. It's up and running on my website. You can find it at michaeltodfink.com forward slash studio. And it features more than a dozen guided meditations and some relaxations and visualizations. And if you can commit even a few minutes a day to practice, you'll find that it really improves concentration along with overall well-being, but concentration is what is needed to achieve any goal, whatever it may be. And I know people typically think of getting physically fit at the beginning of a year, but this could also be the year when we get into the best mental shape of our lives. So please check it out and share with anyone who could benefit from mindfulness and meditation. There are still a few spaces remaining for the mindfulness retreat in Bali, Indonesia, that I'll be co-leading from April 3rd through 9th. Please get in touch soon if interested in registering. The next mindfulness meeting will be Tuesday, February 26th at 7 p.m. in the conference room of Edward Hospital in Plainfield, Illinois. That is in the downstairs of the ER building. More info about that and other events can be found on the website as well. If you have subscribed to this podcast, then on iPhones, you can simply say Siri, play Kind Mind. And it will load. So that's a nice shortcut. I think the AI assistant equivalent on Android will also do that with Google Play. This is the 23rd episode and it's called Unlost in Transition. It was recorded last month right before the polar vortex hit much of the Midwest. So hopefully we have fully transitioned through that because it was frigid. Transitions are uncertain periods in life. And uncertainty is the hallmark of transition and the essence of stress. And I try to explain some of the science behind that in this episode. I also talk about entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, which describes how disorder increases across time. And it accounts for the asymmetry of the past and the future. But I mostly reference as it relates to our psychological experience. And I don't apply any good grasp of it in physics. I used to visit a now-closed metaphysical bookstore in Chicago called Transitions. And it was a helpful place for me during my transition to a working adult after college. A series of coincidences led me there, and that is where I found several really meaningful books that inspired me down a new path of philosophical and spiritual inquiry. In some small way, I hope that this work can function as a transitions bookstore for you. Transitions can happen on any scale. In this episode, I talk about transitioning through one's day, through different states of consciousness, from waking to dreaming to deep sleep, and from dreaming to waking again. I hear many people say that they don't dream, but science has shown that barring some brain injury, everybody dreams. But I don't think everyone recalls their dreams, due in part to the growing demands of our attention. Plus, Americans hit snooze on average 12 times before finally waking up. So by then, one really needs to rush into the day. No transition. 
I read that prior to the Industrial Revolution, dreams were a really important part of daily experience. Imagine life before the internet, before television, before radio, and before so many forms of technology. Dreams would really be something to look forward to, like a source of entertainment and a nightly show and escape from ordinary hardships. So I've been reflecting on this and I've been trying to set the intention for clarity and vividness in dreams and the ability to recall them upon awakening. So I've slowed down the transition from sleep to waking and I'm getting better at sitting in that space instead of automatically and habitually looking forward when I wake up. I take a few moments and look back to process the dream experience. I discuss how paying more attention to our dreams may have significant scientifically validated benefits. The other night I dreamed that I sold my car for (laughs) $56,000. I love my car, but it's not worth that much. So that was a pretty entertaining dream. I also think of this quote from Francis Bacon when it comes to uncertainty. If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. So this speaks to the gift of uncertainty and how transitions do have the power to shape us. And though sometimes painful, it serves as a chisel that reveals something subtler and greater. Or think of herbs growing in the wild and how they're hardly noticed, but once gathered and crushed, then they become valuable spices and release their full fragrance. We can also contemplate transitions on the cosmic scale. Our star, the sun, will eventually transition to a red giant after it has finished burning its hydrogen into helium. This will cause the sun to expand so much that its surface will likely reach the orbit of Mars, which means our planet will already have been incinerated. Fortunately, this whole process takes about 8 billion years. But that is the life of our star. The life of the Earth does not continue as far into the future and will also not find itself in the Goldilocks zone, as it's called, long before the sun becomes a red giant. Because as the sun burns its hydrogen, its luminosity increases by about 10% every 1 billion years. And another 10% increase will generate enough heat to boil the Earth's oceans. So the life of the planet will die well in advance of its cremation by the sun, just as a human body dies long before the funeral. So one billion years is all that's left here. If you think that number is still so astronomically large that it's pointless to be concerned about, consider scaling to the human lifespan. If the earth is going on five billion years old and has one billion years left, that would be like a 70-something-year-old person. We're living on Grandmother Earth. So why does any of that matter? Well, it's not meant to be depressing. I actually find it worthwhile and illuminating to reflect upon. It helps me realize that no matter what we build here, large or small, it's all going to end up in the furnace and soonish in the grandest scheme of things. Certainly that gives perspective on where to draw the line between aspiration and blind ambition and find a balance of the centrifugal and centripetal forces of our life energies, this outward and inward pulls or pursuits, which 
leads me to consider a long transition from the ancient human past. I think of the antithetical lives of Gautama the Buddha and Alexander the Great, who lived a few hundred years later in the 3rd or 4th century BC. Both were the son of kings, born to rule. But Alexander chose to conquer the outer world and Buddha the inner one. Alexander was undefeated in battle and created one of the largest empires stretching across most of the known world. But Buddha was also victorious. Alexander was about as successful as one could be, materially speaking. But it doesn't mean that much today, and it's mostly a historical footnote in our lives. Buddha, on the other hand, continues to influence and uplift mankind. And the mindfulness movement in America owes much to what the Buddha practiced and taught. So the larger scale transitions can shed light on our true purpose. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode. Once again, please rate and review and share. Social proof is a real thing. Actually, it's not. It's a cognitive bias, but it will lead more people to this message and hopefully contribute in some way to building the world we all dream of, a more sustainable and peaceful one. So thank you. When I was going through a transition from high school to college and adulthood, I remember that first year of college, a lot of strange things happened to me. And it was, a, it was a tough time, as it is for most people. I went to Georgetown University, which is 12 hours from here. And my mom and a few relatives came with me for the weekend and then Monday they, they said goodbye and left and I didn't know a single person. So it's like, okay, see you at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Anyways, I was in the School of Business at Georgetown, which may sound surprising to some of you. I was doing accounting one and two and microeconomics, but I didn't quite feel like it was the right path for me ultimately. Nothing wrong with those subjects, but I was feeling a little off and being away from home and so far away and not knowing anybody at first was a big transition. And so I made some friends and I started partying a lot and that kind of helped me cope with the transition. <laughs> and I got introduced to some new things in that uh, world. And then this, this sort of uh, confusion started to kind of grow. And one incident that stands out in my mind was I was out really late. I think it was on a weeknight. Then after uh, going to various places and to various bars, my girlfriend and maybe two other friends, we went to a late night diner. We're in this place getting some food and somebody who appeared to be homeless came in and he was carrying a bunch of stuff. He comes over to our table puts his hands down on the table and he's looking right at me. He's like, I have a message for you. And everybody's looking at this guy like, what in the world is this? And uh, he pulls out a card and puts it on the table. It's a, just an eight of diamonds. He says, this is your card. And I said, okay, what does that mean? 
He said, it means one of two things. It means that if you stay in the direction that you're headed, you'll be really successful in the material sense. And if you change directions, you'll be really successful in the immaterial sense. Because diamonds means wealth and success, and eight uh, also signifies success. So he's like, so I think you're at a crossroads, young man. And that was it. And then he left. <laughs> it's like two in the morning. And I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. That kind of really resonated with me as something I need to reflect on because that's just too strange. And then fast forward, I'm getting to a point where I'm thinking, I don't want to keep studying this uh, on this track, but I didn't really know how to bring it up to my parents yet. I was in the school of business because my mom filled out my application. <laughs> She got into all the schools that I got accepted to, technically. <laughs> um, so when my mom was going to school, which was af after me, and then she went on to law school, and she was asking her sister, do you think I can do this? She's like, of course, you got into Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how to bring it all up, and, and even if I ought to, because I did think, like, this is how I could be successful in life, and that's what this is all about, right? Studying so you could be successful as an adult. And then it all kind of culminated one night when my friends invited me to a talk with a very interesting woman. Her name was B. Ann Gaiman. She was the wife of a few of my friends' English professor. She was an intuitive detective for the CIA and the FBI. She had written a letter to the White House warning them not to let President Kennedy go to Dallas. And after that time, they took her seriously and she had a long career solving crimes with this gift that she had. So she came to our school to speak. I was uh, certainly interested in that and I went and I sat in the back of the room like I often did in the classes. She was talking about how she grew up with this subtle sense of being able to sort of uncover or unpack people's stories, especially if she could hold something that belonged to them, like a watch or a ring. And she started to demonstrate it for different students. So she would take their watch or the ring and she would start to talk to them about their life in a very detailed way. And I was sitting in the back going, oh my God, this is, this is, either all these people are in on it or, and they're playing a big joke on me. I'm hoping like one of my friends will go and I'm thinking I would love to go, but I didn't have anything to give her. As that was rising in my mind to like this fever pitch, she calls out to me, hey, you in the back. And I'm like, me? She's like, yes, you want me to do this for you, right? And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have anything to give you. And she's like, that's all right. I'll do it from here if you don't mind me talking about you in front of everybody. I said, be my guest. And so she starts to describe in great detail what it's like to be me. And ultimately she comes to the point where only I know what I'm going through, which is that I don't want to be in the school of business anymore. And she says, I feel like I'm here to tell you that you can cross over. You can make that transition and everything's going to be all right. But I don't want to tell you what to do, but since you're wondering what's on the other side, 
let me be helpful to you. Let me be a guide to you and say that it's going to be fine if you go pursue music and psychology and try to help people. Everything will, will fall into place. And that was all I needed to hear. Very next day, I withdrew from my college and I reapplied to the College of Arts and Sciences. And I said, psychology is my major and music's my minor. And I said, but you haven't taken a class in either. <laughs> I said, that's all right, I already know. And so then, the, the first semester started in the fall and now I'm a psychology student. So I'm going through the catalog. Back then it was a physical catalog for registering for classes in the 90s. I picked what sounded like the coolest class. It was Brain Behavior and Conscious Experience with a visiting professor, Professor Prebrum, the late Dr. Carl Prebrum from Stanford. I did not want to miss that class because he was a great thinker and a great scientist and he had studied with David Bohm who was successor to Einstein and instrumental in helping us understand quantum theory. And together they were applying it to the way the brain functions. So it didn't matter to me how challenging that class would be. I was just so excited to get started in this world, in this field. And I had recently met the Dalai Lama at American University on a retreat. And so I was like all in now on this transition. And what I really didn't pay enough attention to was that it was um, like a 900 level neuroscience course or something like that. <laughs> For graduate students. And on that day, the first day of the class for the school year, it wasn't even a class. It was like a room like this with a, with a table just for the people. In the, it was a seminar, really. And ahead of me are full-grown adults, and there are doctors from the local hospitals <laughs> going into this class, and some graduate students. And I have my books, and I started to get nervous. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is way, way advanced for me. So I take one of the books, and I like go to the side before I enter, and I open randomly to a page of Languages of the Brain, which is one of his books, and it says, the neuron is the basic unit of computation in the brain. And then I close the book. I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be really technical. <laughs> and then I go in, and then I meet Dr. Prebram for the first time. He's very short, and he's from Eastern Europe. He had long white hair and a long white beard. And his accent was unfamiliar to me, because I hadn't met many people yet. He looked so wise. He was probably in his late 70s. He taught until 95 years old at Georgetown. And uh, he comes over to me and he says, you must be Todd, or Michael, because that's my first name. He said, we got a problem. <laughs> and I said, I figured we might. He said, uh, you don't meet any of the prerequisites for this course. <laughs> I know, but I'm really enthusiastic. <laughs> he said, be it as it may, uh, you don't even have biology 101. You don't even have an introduction to psychology. So I don't know how useful this class would be for you, even if I could let you take this course. So I think we have to settle this with the registrar and get you back into a, the right fit. And I said, well, I understand that you're visiting professor this semester and I may not have another opportunity to study under you. So 
If you have to fail me, you can fail me, but I really don't want to miss the opportunity to be in your company and learn what I can about the brain because I'm really excited for this journey. And so, I mean, he liked that. I, mean, I think that impressed him a little bit. So he steps back, he starts scratching his beard, like thinking about what to do. And then a light bulb goes off in his mind. I can see it. I can see him light up and he steps forward and he says, I tell you what, if you can tell me the definition of a neuron. <laughs> I'll let you take this course. So I puff up my chest and I tell him the only thing I know about the brain at the time. <laughs> and I said, the neuron is the basic unit of computation in the brain, Dr. Prebram. <laughs> starts laughing and he taps me on the back and says, welcome aboard. I won't give you less than a B no matter what happens. And I got a B. <laughs> and yes, a lot of it was over my head, but there was one thing that I think really made a difference for the way I understood perception. And that was this notion that we see because of light. Like we think you flip the lights on and it goes from being dark to being illuminated and therefore we can see. But what he taught me was that that's not how we see. The light is actually communicating. The light is actually taking information and what it is that we think we're seeing is in the light. And that was kind of a powerful shift for me. So he demonstrated it with a projector. He said, this projector is sort of the way the, the eye and the brain works. Now, if I take the lens off, you don't just get to see what's there. Now there's nothing. He's like, and that is the reality, that the world is chaotic. And the eye and the brain create a sense of order. And so, to prove to you that the information is in the light, he moves the lens around. He's like, look, it's here, it's here, in the beam. I'm gonna put it anywhere, and you'll find the image of what's being projected. So every particle of light contained the whole message, and that was also a revelation for me. So I learned a lot from Dr. Prebum, and he told me that though many, much of this won't make sense now, I think it will later as you keep continuing to study the brain. So he helped me B. Ann Gaiman, the intuitive detective of the CIA, helped me. And that's what we're talking about tonight, transitions. To transition means to cross over. Transition comes from the word transitio in Latin, which means to cross over. Which reminds me of a scripture I was studying once in India that said, Kastarati, Kastarati, which was about the teacher as a question. Who crosses, and it says it twice. Who crosses, who crosses? So I'm talking with my teacher. Why does it say it twice? He said, because if the river or the ocean is the representation of the illusion or the world, who crosses is the awakened one, but not everyone who wakes up crosses back. So there's two crossings 
to become a teacher. You cross over, you, you awaken, and then you decide for whatever reason, from some special plan, to come back. And this Indian sage, Ramakrishna, described it as climbing up this high wall. And when you get to the top, you get to see the, the reality. And it's like this amazing party. So your first instinct is usually to just join. And he said, but uh, the guru is one that pauses there, sees what's going on, understands what is on the other side, and then looks back and sees all these other people suffering. So he comes back down. So this is kind of like this higher transition. And different spiritual cultures had built into their systems ways of transitioning. And this is getting lost to some extent today as the institutions that sort of maintained or preserved these traditions start to break down. And they're breaking down for obvious reasons. We have a, a ritual for getting married. But once upon a time, the ritual was performed at the introduction of the bride and groom. So it's really the transition. And you really needed the families to come together. You needed the elders to be there. You needed support because you had no clue what you're getting into. But nowadays, the marriage is actually a formality, right? Especially in, in modern society. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. I'm just explaining how the, the, the ceremony doesn't perform the same function or the ritual doesn't mean the same thing. So I've already been living with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever for multiple years and decide, yeah, let's make this official. There's no uncertainty there, no real uncertainty about what will it be like to be with you. And so when you do the ceremony, it's mo mostly a formality. It's an opportunity for people to celebrate. It's a wonderful occasion, but it doesn't quite mean the same thing. Other rites of passage were always there in all different indigenous cultures, especially. But nowadays, it's sort of like something that happens in a formulaic way. My son or daughter is 16, today is the day we do whatever the ceremony is. You know, we have all these different ceremonies for, for different ethnicities and cultures and religions. But I would imagine that in the past, like in indigenous cultures, the father and the mother probably watched the child and they probably decided now's the time. Now I think he or she's ready. It's not like because this anniversary has come, they're automatically ready. And so there was probably a lot to that <coughs> ceremony. So like, you know, I've read about a little bit about some Native American traditions like the vision quest, which would be taking the child who's transitioning to adulthood to a place that's unfamiliar. And they would describe it as a place that's not readily recognized as something formed by humans or nature, a strange place. And then the child would stay there alone for three days. They would fast and they would wait for their sign, their vision. Now you had to be ready for something like that because that is a very challenging situation. And but then the parents or the elders will be waiting on the other side. They will be guiding you up into that point and then you have to pass through and they'll meet you on the other side. Now that's a really powerful symbol and metaphor. 
as we disconnect from these traditions, I think we're missing something. We're missing the fellowship and the sacredness of passing through these different stages of life. So what do we do? When we find ourselves in transitions, we get depressed and we get anxiety. And then we go and we get help. And who do we get help from? Therapists, clinicians, and who are they? People like us are uh, trained professionals in life stages, because that is when you're going to be receiving clients the most. Kids transitioning or struggling to transition to college, and people in divorce, people heading into retirement, people after they lost everything in the economic collapse 10 years ago, and so on. <coughs> Transitions. We've studied them. We have a sense of what it's like and what the signs and symptoms are and how to help people get through. So we're in some capacities trying to function in the role to some extent of like an elder, a medicine man, and so on. And I think it's important to have access to that one way or another. And if we're not going to be able to maintain our sacred rituals, we may have to develop new ones. We may have to create modern ones as Americans. And it's difficult because America values independence so much and everybody's just kind of on their own. But it's really hard to just be on your own because when you go through the transition, the hardest thing in this modern world about it is that you feel misunderstood and you feel isolated during that transition, especially if you're losing people. There's four stages in Native American tradition that, that I've read about. Infancy, childhood, adulthood, and elderhood. The infant stage is until you can talk. And that's kind of interesting because infant actually means unable to speak, infant. And that stage is complete when the language comes and then there's a transition. And most indigenous cultures, rituals were built around the major life transitions. And then there's a passage into adulthood. And then there's a final passage into becoming an elder. Then you kind of had a stable model for protecting the society and supporting the society and not feeling alone at the times of transition. You had this collective wisdom. And the elders obviously were very respected and needed and appreciated. In ancient spiritual India, in the Vedic tradition, they had four stages called ashramas. Stage one is called brahmacharya, which means discipline and studentship. And this would last from about zero to 20, 25. And a good part of that would include your training at a hermitage in the forest. That's where the sages were, in a forest or a cave or in the mountains. And so around age seven, the child would leave their parents and go train with the hermit. And the hermit would be somebody who's like the elder of other indigenous traditions, filled with all kinds of insights and knowledge about the ways of their people and would train the child, and then when the child was mature enough or successful enough, the guru would help the child decide what path was suitable 
they would have a few choices based on where their strengths were, what their skill sets were during this time. And the guru would give some advice, like you would be good at this occupation. And then they would go back to the society and start a family. So stage two is called gruhasta, which meant householder. Marry, have a family, take on some work, and that would last for about 25 years until their children were grown. Then at around age of 50, the third stage was called Vanaprastha, which meant return to the forest. So at this stage, the person then becomes like their teacher, where they go to a more secluded place. It's like retirement where people go to Florida or Arizona. <laughs> they go to a more natural place where it's, yeah, ideally warmer. And then their sole purpose is not to earn money anymore, but to give back. And these people are supported by the families who are working and sending their kids to the hermitage. They're also sending money and food and resources, so they don't have to worry about needing anything because they have their role in the society. And then at around 75 or whenever the last quarter of life would be, it's called sannyasa, and sannyasa meant renunciation. At that point, you leave everything, no more teaching, no more hermitage, no more forest. They would then become like a monastic. That period of time is only for the final crossing over. Just prepare yourself. Maybe you get one year, two year, three year, maybe you get 25 years. But whatever you have left, dedicate it to meditation and preparation for the final transition. And there would be other people who are more advanced in that stage to support that. Now the interesting thing about the Vedic culture was that anybody who was truly ready could jump to sannyasa. And so somebody like Adi Shankara, Shankaracharya, one of the great reformers of Hinduism, he became sannyasi at 16 years old. You ordinarily had to take the permission of your parents because who wants their kid to become a monk, <laughs> really? It was unlikely because that means you're not going to have much to do with me. You're gonna be pursuing spiritual truth and you're not going to take on the family tradition. You're not going to have an heir. So our lineage may not continue. So people were kind of scared of that. And it was just Shankara and his mother, his father was gone. And so his mother was like, no, you can't be a monk. But the legend goes that when they were by the river, a crocodile attacked him. And since he was about to die, he asked his mother for her blessing for him to die as a sannyasi, as a renunciant, as a monk. And so, of course, since her son's about to be eaten, she said, she's crying everything. She says, I bless you to die as a monk. And then the crocodile let him go. And so he was a monk. He holds his mother and says, oh, I have to go now. She says, but will you at least come back when it's my time to transition and help me to transition out of this life? And he does. So before his mother dies, he comes back from this great journey throughout India and reforming of the sacred order of swamis to come see his mother and help her journey over. So there's all these really interesting stories and ways that people helped each other through the transitions. Now what about a transition is so difficult? 
Turns out that what the brain hates the most is uncertainty. Well, it's interesting because the universe is designed to become more and more uncertain, more and more disorganized. This is called entropy in mathematics, the second law of thermodynamics, which I don't purport to know anything about. But I can understand that as things move forward in time, they get more disorganized. If you open a deck of cards, it's so neatly ordered. And the royal family is together. And then there's the numbers. And once you start shuffling and dealing, it'll never be that way ever again. And that's what it's like when we're born. We're like a deck of cards that's so nicely organized. And from there, chaos is coming, disorder. And there are certain points where you actually pass through major shuffles of the deck. It's like the dealing's gone on, now we got back together, now we're gonna mix it all up again. And that's like, you know, going to college, getting a job for the first time, getting married, getting divorced, retiring, getting sick. And it turns out though, that what is the most stressful is the uncertainty. It is more stressful than knowing for sure that trouble is coming. And this has been proven in psychological experiments. One experiment that comes to mind is a test with subjects looking at a computer screen of images of digital rocks. And they have to click and flip these rocks over. Underneath the rock will either be a snake or no snake. If there's a snake underneath that rock, their hand is hooked up to an electrode, they will get a mild but painful shock. So every time a snake comes, they're gonna get hurt. But there are certain patterns emerging, and over time, they can start to figure out whether or not there's going to be a snake underneath this rock. And while they are going through this experiment, the researchers are monitoring their stress levels. They're monitoring the dilation of pupils and the perspiration on the skin. And it turns out the most stressful situation is when they don't know if the rock contains a snake hiding underneath it. If they know for sure that they're gonna get shocked, that's actually less stressful than the possibility of not getting shocked. So what does that tell you? That it's uncertainty that we've evolved to hate and we're hardwired to resist it. And it's partly because of survival. But what's interesting is that evolutionary psychology is antithetical to entropy of thermodynamics. Maybe some quirk of evolution. Like if for whatever reason, biological systems, self-organizing systems didn't want to disintegrate, which they inevitably will, in the end, entropy is going to win. But those that fought and railed against this lived longer, could pass on the DNA. And that is the goal of evolution, to get the DNA passed on. It's not necessarily for you to be well, because like, it doesn't keep us well to be anxious now, but it kept our DNA protected to be passed on. That is the force of evolution, to keep the genetic material continuing. So now we've evolved to hate uncertainty. Well, what does this mean? This means that when you go through a transition, you're going from one way of being to a new way of being. And in between, you don't know. 
There could be a pretty good sense that it's going to be better, still you have stress. The essence of stress is uncertainty. And this is why even when people are going on vacation, they may be stressed out. They're going to paradise, but still stressful, because I've never been there, and I don't know, like, what's it like there? Do I need a visa? But I highly doubt that it's going to be dangerous, and I highly doubt that it's going to be a negative experience. <laughs> Doesn't matter. That's what our brain is fighting against, is uncertainty. That's why our whole lives get built around routines. And we don't even realize that there's a force operating to try to make things stable. And learning doesn't happen just based on your desire. Learning actually happens based on the degree of instability of the environment. Think about it. This is why people can't learn a language as, as much as they try to read stuff about the language and watch some soap operas in the other language or get the Rosetta Stone or whatever and still, ah, I still can't speak it. But you throw them into the actual country and all of a sudden in a few weeks they're picking up on stuff. In the uncertainty, the brain dedicates more resources to learning. So if you want to learn, you need uncertainty. But if you're trapped in uncertainty, your brain gets overloaded by the demand of energy in the cerebral cortex and you become vulnerable to illness and disease. So people feeling trapped in uncertainty end up getting sick. And in some cases, they die. They get cardiovascular disease or they get cancer and so on because there's too many resources going towards the resistance to uncertainty. In a study of many college students, researchers found that they could predict depression, anxiety, other types of mental illness and dropping out based on their social structures prior to that transition. So if those students had multiple social circles, they were less likely to struggle with those problems. If they had one social network, they were more likely to fall victim to one of those problems. If you have more social structures, you already have experienced entropy in your social life. You've already disordered the nuclear family. I mean, you've expanded beyond that. You've shuffled the deck enough. So when things change, it's less dramatic than if all your eggs are in one basket and then the deck gets shuffled. So this is how we can prepare ourselves and our children by diversity making their experiences dynamic. Now this is kind of challenging because what are we kind of focused on as a society? Be great at something. What does it take to be great at something? It takes certainty. I'm going to be certain about focusing so much on playing football or whatever. You see in athletes, professional athletes, when they transition out of their sport, they often get depressed. Doesn't matter that they're millionaires. All of their eggs were in this basket and now that's thrown all over the place. So it's very painful and it's filled with uncertainty. Again, the stress is uncertainty. Well, what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? Doesn't matter that I have the money to do anything I want. I've only known how to do one thing. That's why Ralph Waldo Emerson said, to find somebody great isn't so special. To find somebody truly 
balanced is rare. We're all destined to be spread about. Our families, our life. If you look back to a former version of yourself, when I look back to a, to a different me, I don't even think that is me. If you put that person here, it'd be like, are we even related? You know, but I say it's me. Now the strange thing is how in the world does that continuity happen, especially when I don't possess a single atom that I had as a child? You know, it's like there's already been reincarnation within this life. But the reality is entropy. I'm not the same. I don't think the same. I don't have the same cells anymore. I don't have the same atoms. But somehow there was a sense of I-ness. And that's what some spiritual traditions, and that's what the Buddha was saying, that is an illusion. It's only the idea that somehow there's an I. It's just like there's no car inside of the car. The car is just a relationship of matter. And the car is destined for the junkyard, destined to go back to being parts once again. And so is the biological system. But all cognitive biological systems resist entropy because they have a sense of I-ness. And so spirituality is always about dealing with that I, the ego. And I think that through meditation, you can transcend this process because you realize that you don't exist in the way that you were hallucinating you did. Which we can obviously realize that in some ways, like I'm not really just an athlete when I break my foot and it feels like my world is collapsing, I don't know who I am anymore. You come to realize that's not really who you are. When you lose love and you realize over time and through therapy and with support, I'm not just the other. You know, that was a role that I was taking on. I think one of the problems in modern society is that we're constantly brushing up against uncertainty because we're all so specialized now. And so anything at all that happens, we don't know how to handle it at all, especially younger generations. I mean, these were things that everybody had to do to some extent just to survive. And of course, you know, these are all YouTube videos away from understanding how to do. But it still creates stress and it still creates uncertainty and we don't realize that we're sometimes not helping our children or our families by trying to get them great at something. Fortunately in my life, I had the example of my father who could just do anything. He knew about engineering and electronics and electricity and mathematics and he wrote poetry and he published a book of poetry and he played instruments and he played sports and it was just so dynamic. I wouldn't say he was the best at anything. He was just good at everything. And that really was inspiring to me because you know, to just be curious and interested and versed in so many different things. But it prepares you because as all these things change, as they inevitably will, you don't feel like you've lost everything. I mean, think about when the economy collapsed, people lost their, not only their 401ks, but industries collapsed. Industries are still collapsing. People who have worked their whole life to be able to be skilled at something, suddenly there's no place for that anymore. Suddenly a computer does that in two seconds. You know? And that's where so many jobs are headed, to automation. It's creating a, you know, a ton of uncertainty. I think this is where spirituality is important because it's about finding 
guidance ahead. So when you hit uncertainty, when you hit the transitions, all the brain can do is process past data. All it can do is look for an algorithm based on what you've already experienced. This is why you want to look backward for the answers. This is why when someone's getting out of a relationship, they're looking back going like, well, maybe we can work this out. Maybe it isn't as bad as I think it is. And they start second guessing themselves. That's why kids don't want to leave to go to college. You know what, I'll just stay here, I'll work, I'll go next year, you know, things like that. And I think also why like youth seems to be extending. And now it's like way past 21, right? So yeah, because we're, we're fighting against uncertainty. But what spirituality is about is syncing up with wisdom. So you don't have to find the answers in the past. Somebody saying, I've already been on this side and, you know, come on through. That's what's sort of missing when, when we try to do things alone. You know, that's important. This is why I uh, work with clients who are getting out of unhealthy, abusive relationships and they have more stress now being out of the relationship than when they were in the abusive relationship. Obviously, they had more physical harm back then, but they have more stress now because there's uncertainty. Even, like I said, it's not about avoiding pain. It's about avoiding uncertainty. That's why you need spiritual support. You know, that's why we need therapeutic environments. And that's why the clinicians now are trying to function in this role of guiding people and encouraging people keep going. The uncertainty is, is temporary. But we can actually access our full creative power if we practice, if you practice in the smaller uncertainties and also the smaller transitions, I guess I should say. Because nature is filled with transition and we rarely honor any of it. Every day, there's transitions. Dawn, dusk, we transition through the seasons. But when the new season comes, like when summer's ending and fall's coming, people get stressed out. They don't transition well. And even in the course of the day, we don't transition well. People take their work everywhere they go. They don't fully transition into family time or into their meditation time certainly don't trans transition well to sleep. That's why insomnia is increasing throughout the country. People are looking at the phones habitually, addictively, and it's disrupting their cycles. What will it take to put that down and actually make a transition? And I think though, if we get better at transitioning just in the course of the day, you start to transition better in the larger scheme of things. So how would we transition better in the course of our day? Well, the turning points of the day, like dusk at night and dawn in the morning, in, in Sanskrit, those were called sandhya. Evening was called sandhya and dawn was called sandhya. They used the same word because the sky looks almost the same. So they used the same word. And sandhya was a compound word, samyak dhyana. Dhyana means meditation the good time for meditation. What does that tell you in these ancient traditions? The transition was the time 
to meditate. Whether it's the small transition of the day, that's when you pause and you retreat into yourself. Let go of all the uncertainties and you just rest, you pause. And it's interesting because at those points, something beautiful is happening. I mean, sunsets are beautiful. If you catch a sunset, it's sort of like, there's no more time, there's no more worries, there's nothing. There's just being and presence. It's not like you're watching a sunset and amazed with its beauty and starting to think, no, it could be a lot better if there was a little more blue over here. <laughs> and the one I saw last week, now that totally beats this one. There's no thought, there's no comparison anymore. So if we practice transitioning, sandhya, practice making a good transition throughout your day. There were four junctures in the ancient times. Dawn, noon, because noon represented the high point of the sun. And after that, the sun's no longer rising. Now it's setting. Dusk, when the sun transitions into night. And then midnight, because now the sun is on its way back. It's no longer going away, it's on its return. And then when it actually rises. And people would meditate at all four points. We may not be able to meditate in the middle of the night at midnight, but we can certainly transition better at the start and end of our day. How can we transition better in the morning? What do people do now? They hit snooze 12 times, so on average. <laughs> so first of all, they're very resistant to transition out of sleeping. And because they struggle so much to make that transition, they then have to leap into the day to get caught up. And all that is unfortunate because there's something to meditate on in that space. Something happened in your sleep and people just forget it because they immediately think about the future. And you may think you don't dream, but everybody dreams. It's already been proven. We can watch it. And what do you dream about? Well, people dream about what they want to learn about. Maybe not all the time, but scientists have looked at MRIs of the brains of animals when they are learning. So like if you're teaching an animal the way through a maze to get some food, and you watch which parts of the brain specifically activate to achieve that, if you follow that animal into dream, those same patterns will illuminate again so as to learn what it's trying to learn. In this way, my brother learned how to play the drums without ever having a drum kit, always practicing in the dream. And then once he had the drum kit, he could just play. I saw it, and we grew up together. I knew we never had a drum kit. He got really good at that through controlling dreams. But also, uh, our dreams may be showing us something. Like one time, I had this very unusual, random dream. I was driving my brother's truck, and I was driving down Route 126 late at night. Now it's just me, and all of a sudden, everything turns dark, and then I get pulled over by a police officer and I wake up. And I was like, that's pretty random and specific, but it can't be 
true because I don't drive my brother's truck. So that weekend, like two days later, I had to go to Indiana to visit some family and my car won't start. So I asked my brother, hey, can I borrow your truck? I gotta make a trip. He says, yeah, sure. On the way back at two in the morning, a fuse blows on the dashboard and everything turns black. And in that moment, a cop pulls out and pulls me over for not having my lights on. He wisely suggests to turn on the hazards and he'll follow me home because I was close to home at that point. I mean, it's just random and it's like, not didn't save me from anything catastrophic or anything, but it was just so interesting that my brain somehow was intuiting something that was going to happen as random and as unimportant as that small event may be. Who knows what else is happening in dreams that are just lost to our conscious awareness because we don't transition well. And so what I think is wise is to, to discipline yourself to not grab the phone as your first thing because the phone is immediately going to draw your mind into something else. People want to just grab the phone because that's where their alarm is and then well, why not look at this message for somebody? Why not look at my email? Why not just look at a few things on the news feed? And that can easily turn into 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes. But who wants to start their day that way? Spending 40 minutes in a news feed before you sit up. I mean, if I asked you, what would a mindful morning look like to you? I doubt many people would say, I'd like to get stuck on a news feed for a while. <laughs> if we put the phone away or leave it on airplane mode or something, you can use the clock. But the first thing you can do is check in with your body and reflect on your dream. And you'll be surprised. If you intend to do this, you'll remember it. There's no intention to remember, and there's no ritual in this transition, so it's just gone. But if you set that intention, your brain then knows this is important. And if you slow down that transition, you can really kind of see what happened. And you can appreciate that and pay respect to that and then cross over. This is what transitioning and crossing over is all about. And now maybe you have some insight. Maybe you have something to be grateful for. Maybe what you were trying to learn in your sleep can be more integrated now that you replayed it one more time. You worked on it before, you worked on it in the night, you thought about it one more time, and maybe those connections in the brain can be solidified so that you can be more intelligent. And so if we work on these transitions, then I think we get better at the bigger transitions. And if we're open to the wisdom of our elders, of our teachers, we can get the support and guidance that we need to cross over, knowing that we all have to cross over. Like I said before, as much as we try, as much as we fight aging and the, and the breaking apart of what once was, it's inevitable. Entropy is going to win we might as well learn how to accept it and to be mature about it so that we can have self-compassion and then share that wisdom and compassion with the people of our community. Astrology is an example of how there's a big industry for helping people cope with uncertainty. 
You know, you go to the astrologer, you go to a psychic, basically when you're not sure how this is going to turn out. And so you're looking for anything that will help you feel certain, even if it doesn't turn out to be true. Anyways, in California, I was talking to a woman who practices astrology. She was a really wonderful woman and, and very intelligent. And she gave me this uh, analogy with like, how to be with people because we're so different. And she said, what if it's like cells in a body? You got different kinds of cells in the human body. And if people represented these different kinds of tissues and organs, just think of how different we would be, but how necessary it would be to be different in that way. So like, if a digestive cell met a cell from the immune system, like the immune system is aggressive and protective and ready to fight, and the digestive cell has a totally different function, and they may seem like opposed to each other, but they're really working on a larger scale that they can't perceive in cooperation with the whole. And that's probably what people are like. They have all different personalities and tendencies, and they fit into the body of humanity, but we're different. And we want everybody to be the same because we don't like uncertainty. <laughs> There's one other thing with the uncertainty that's really important is it is a gift. Though it's filled with stress, with the right attitude, like what we're talking about tonight, it will be a gift. You think of something like recovery. If anybody has been through uh, recovery from mental illness or addiction, or you know somebody, that touches all of us one way or another. When a person is certain about their recovery, that's actually a risky state of mind to be in. Those of you who have ever been around AA or 12-step programs will encounter people like this or, or have yourself. And I certainly encounter people in, in treatment who are certain they're done. Why would they be certain that they're never going to use again? Now, this is a problem because if you're certain that you're not going to use, there's no reason to go to 12-step meetings. There's no reason to stay vigilant of your moods and patterns and behaviors and warning signs. Only if you were uncertain would you really decide, I'm just going to stay with support and with guidance and in therapeutic settings and with my meeting and my sponsor. Though I feel good, and though I haven't had a craving, I, I'm still unsure. I'm still uncertain about what's going to happen. Now think about what a gift that is for a person in recovery. Because I encounter people all the time that are very certain that they're on the right track. And most times we see each other again. So it's something to remember that to be uncertain keeps your mind open. And that's why it's actually necessary to break up our routine once in a while so that more resources will go to the cerebral cortex and the limbic system and the hippocampus. These are uh, regions of the brain dedicated to processing new information and to learning so you can grow. When you're in a very stable situation, the brain goes on like low power mode because it doesn't have to solve uncertainty. So you're almost doing yourself a disservice by creating the sense of certainty all of the time. There is a line because once your brain is consuming too many resources, you're going to get sick. 
It's sort of like there's a line with everything that's good for you. Just because the food is healthy doesn't mean you can eat unlimited quantities of it, right? Just because exercise helps us get fit doesn't mean that there's no overdoing it. Of course there is, right? So it's, yes, it's individual, but once you have this kind of insight and the mature attitude, things become less overwhelming when you're in the uncertainty because you understand uncertainty for what it is, the opportunity to step back and meditate, the sandhya of your life, the juncture. And so if you're meditative in those periods of time, you know it's impermanent. So with insight from the wise, you know you can get through these life transitions. I'll illustrate it in a story about Confucius. When Confucius was younger, he took a group of students to a remote region in western China to observe waterfalls. And they came to a massive waterfall, one of the largest in, in that part of China. And he's telling them this, the force of the water and the current is so strong at the bottom that fish can't even go near this. And as they're approaching it, they see a man in the waterfall being tossed and turned. So Confucius says, quick, let's run over there because maybe he fell in or perhaps he's suicidal, but either way, let's see if we can save him. So they rush over there, but before they arrive, he has come out and he's swam to the bank and he's drying himself off and humming a tune to himself. And appears to be totally fine. So Confucius walks up to him and he says, excuse me, aren't you the man that was just being tossed and turned in the waterfall some moments ago? He said, yes, that's me. And he pokes him. Are you some kind of supernatural being? No, I'm quite an ordinary man. He said, well, then how are you surviving that kind of force of the, those currents? He says, well, I don't know how to explain it, really, because I've been doing it my whole life. But if I had to make sense of it, I would say that because I grew up here, I started swimming in very small waterfalls, and I gradually swam in larger and lar larger waterfalls until I could swim in this one. And so I, I think I understand the changes and I work with the changes. He says, I know that when I get in, I'm gonna be pulled all the way down to the bottom. So I don't resist. And once I get to the bottom, there is an upward pull that brings me towards the surface and I go with it. And that's when the currents start to turn me left and right. But as it pulls me that way, I roll that way. And when the other one comes, I roll with that. And so it becomes like a ride that I enjoy. And so Confucius says, thank you. He comes over to his students and he says, this man's life is a message for transitions, changes. He's like, there are four steps to be able to enjoy the ride and the way that this man enjoys swimming in the chaotic currents. Number one, get acquainted with the currents of life. We already know what some of the transitions are. I already narrated them. We're all going to get older. We're all going to have ups and downs with our health. We're going to lose our loved ones and we're going to die. That is something that we don't think about much. 
But if you think about it a little bit, you can get perspective. You can consult with people who know more. What happens when the heart breaks? It breaks open. If it breaks open, there's something waiting on the other side. And that's why I love this saying that only the defeated know love. So it's a transition. But anyways, step two, practice in the course of your day. So entropy in the course of your day could be like any randomness, any break of the routine. Perfect example is waiting in traffic, weather. All of a sudden it's going to be very cold tomorrow. Colder than any day in history. Well, that's not something that you could really expect. But we can practice. And you're practicing because you decided to come anyway. You're working through instead of going back. It's a practice. It will make you more resilient. I mean, obviously, we all thought about going back. <laughs> I didn't because I was already here all day. But I don't have to be detective for the CIA to know that one. <laughs> okay, so you practice in the day because those are small waterfalls. Step three, practice in the larger transitions. You've practiced meditating at dawn and dusk. You've practiced improving your transition to sleep from dream to being awake from the unexpected in the course of your day. I mean, see how well you can get at managing your emotions in traffic. I got run off the road the other day by a semi-truck and I saw the shoulders wide open and there's enough space there. So I just went onto the shoulder and stayed neck and neck with the, the semi until I could get fast enough to get back in before a wall was coming up. And I just did it all. I'm not saying like that everybody will be able to do that, but there's no amount of uh, second guessing that that would actually really be helpful. So then once I was back on the road, I realized I'm in the same position as I would be in if nothing happened. I'm through. So how much more resources do I want to dedicate to this? So I just decided I'm not even going to think about it again. I didn't look for him. I didn't give him a signal. I mean, I'm not his teacher. <laughs> so, anyways, there's opportunities to practice. And finally, work on enjoying it. I wouldn't say it was fun while it was happening, uh, but it was like a roller coaster of sorts. I mean, people pay to wait in line to get carried up and dropped and <laughs> twisted and turned, you know. They want to ride, you know. And music reflects this. As a musician, I, I, this is what I love about music, transitions. For me and my brother, that's like our specialty. You got an idea and I got an idea. And together, we can bridge it. In jazz, sometimes this is called backcycling, which means you're going to some chord from a seemingly disconnected chord. But if you add two substitutions before it, 
you'll transition through it beautifully. It's a 2-5-1 progression, if anyone knows anything about jazz or music theory. And you can keep doing that. You can keep back cycling. So there's cycles. And so there is a path through the transitions. And I would love to do that in music. And our brains love it too. You like music without realizing it that goes from a transition and comes back to the tonic. The tonic means the root. Brings you back to safety. The dominant chord creates a certain tension. It's like inhaling and holding your breath. And the root chord, which is where the dominant chord wants to go, is like exhaling. And to successfully navigate the listener through that is to take them on a ride. If you don't have that conflict and resolution, you feel as though you're not getting your money's worth, essentially. You know, that's why it's really easy to get on the lazy river at the theme park, but it takes a while to get on the real aggressive roller coaster. So it's an art form to create the transitions in music and you need substitutions and techniques like backcycling. And the wise teachers in jazz will help you intuit that so it's second nature. You don't have to think, okay, how can I install some chords? It just happens spontaneously. And that's what Confucius is describing in his experience. This is also why we love everything that takes us from entropy to order because of our evolution. So what do people like to play? Sudoku. What's Sudoku? A bunch of chaos that eventually gets organized. A puzzle. Whether it's a big 500-piece puzzle, especially when you don't even know what it's supposed to look like. Like in the hospital, we just dump a bunch of pieces and say, hey, feel free to work on this guy. And when, when it's done, it's in order. It's the opposite of the universe. It's the opposite of what's happening to us. A crossword puzzle. It goes from chaos to order. And that's what happens in music. So our brains like that. And that's why we have to practice because what our brain wants to do is to go back. But in the spiritual life, you have to go forward. And there are guides and wisdom and your own higher self is also waiting for you on the other side. You can mentally prepare in the course of your day, you will find opportunities. Eventually you'll notice that you always lose when you come to this particular kind of event. And uh, that's like a kid playing a video game and trying to figure out how to beat this guy on this level. If it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be a good game. When you see it in your life, you will actually be ready and be waiting for the next opportunity because if the opportunity doesn't come, you won't get to practice and you won't get to grow. We get stuck there by lack of commitment. You get through the transition by committing to the new you on the other side. And relationships are tough when people don't commit to moving forward in their life. You know, they go back or they have bad boundaries with themselves. So boundaries, commitment, and moving forward gets you through the transition. When we're pushing back against the expansion of the universe, of our life, 
towards disintegration. And you think like, why do I have to get older? Why do I have to die? When I think about this, there's like, there's no other way. Even if what we think we want happened, it's not true. Like, what would we want? To just, to be a baby for a hundred years? No, that would give us a longer life. But nobody would want that because that would be miserable. And you're so vulnerable and helpless. It's like a nightmare being a baby. <laughs> it's like a constant nightmare. Talk about a transition. <laughs> would we want to be a teenager for another decade? No. But this is the tricky thing. When people think of that sweet spot, my point is there really isn't one. What you think you want isn't true. What we really want is the way things are. And that's why the Tao Te Ching says, learn to rejoice in the way things are. And there's so much wisdom in that because when you realize this is the way, and the only other way would be something totally different or hitting pause. And if you hit pause, there's no dynamicism. If it's changing, then there's entropy and thermodynamics. Otherwise, you go back. But if you go back, it has to play out exactly the same. Because if it plays out differently, then once again, it's going to lead to chaos. There's no other way. But what we need to do is work on radical <laughs> acceptance and seek out the wisdom of the elders and, uh, and those who crossed over, cross back over to guide us.